Hiya, welcome to another episode of Dark and Spooky, a horror podcast with me, Miss Dark and Spooky, aka The Girl Next Door. Today's episode will be part three of Unsolved Mysteries. So are we all sat comfortable? Are we ready? Let's get into it. Scotland seems to call dogs to jump to their death. Since the early 1960s over 50 canines have perished and hundreds more have left but survived, with some returning for a second leap onto the jagged rocks that lie 50 feet below. The Scottish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals has sent representatives to investigate the bridge but had no luck. In terms of scientific truth, it is debatable whether dogs are capable of forming a suicide attempt, yet something is luring dogs off the Overton Bridge, often from the same spot and always on sunny, dry days. Many theories have emerged, including that the bridge is haunted, a small animal is marking the area with an irresistible scent, or a sound exists below the bridge that only dogs can hear. Whatever is causing this phenomenon, dog owners crossing this bridge would be wise to take extra caution and keep their dogs on leashes. superstar OJ Simpson and Ronald L. Goldman was found outside Nicole's townhouse, stabbed to death. At the time, Nicole and OJ were divorced and living in separate residences. The bodies were found by neighbours who were literally led to the bodies by Nicole's dog, who was reported to be barking around the time of the murders. The timeline surrounding the murders is as follows. On June 12th at 6.30pm, Nicole, her children and others arrive at the restaurant called Mezzaluna. At 9.15, the same night, her sister called the restaurant to say that her mother had left her glasses there. Ronald Goldman goes to pick up the glasses. At 9.00pm, 9, OJ Simpson and his friend Brian Cato Kaelin headed to a nearby McDonald's for dinner. At 9.45, they return home from McDonald's. Cato was staying at OJ's guest house at that time. At 9.48 to 9.50, Goldman leaves Mezzaluna with a white envelope containing the glasses. At 10.15pm, Nicole's neighbour hears a dog bark and cry while he's watching TV. Prosecutors then theorise that these barks signified the murder of the dog's owner, Nicole. At 
10.25, a limo driver named Alan Park arrives at OJ Simpson's home. OJ was scheduled for a red-eye flight at 11.45. At 10.40, Cato reported he heard three loud thumps on an outside wall of the guest house he was staying in. From 10.40 to 10.55, Alan Park buzzed OJ's intercom several times, but there was no answer. Just before 11pm, Alan reports seeing a shadowy figure that was six foot tall and over £200 walking across the driveway. At 11pm, Alan tried buzzing OJ again and this time OJ answered. He claimed that he had overslept and just got out of the shower. At 11.45pm, OJ departs on his flight and at 12.10am the next morning the bodies of Nicole and Ronald Goldman are discovered. Evidence found at the crime scene included a blood-stained glove, a knitted hat and a blooded footprint. When OJ landed in Chicago, he was contacted by Detective Ron Phillips and told that his ex-wife had died. Upon hearing the news, OJ asked, who killed her? OJ was then questioned for three hours by the LAPD. On June 17th, OJ was charged with two counts of murder and declared a fugitive. The high-speed chase involving police and OJ's white Ford Bronco has been a lasting memory for anyone involved with the case. During the case, OJ was sitting in the passenger seat while his friend Al Cowlins drove. Cowlins reported that he didn't stop because OJ was holding a gun to his head and that OJ was suicidal. The chase ended at OJ's home in Brantwood. Inside the car, they found makeup adhesive, a fake moustache, OJ's passport and a gun. What followed was one of the most publicised trials in US history. OJ was represented by a high-profile defence team, also known as the Dream Team, which were initially led by Robert Shapiro and then Johnny Cocone. The team also included F. Lee Bailey, Alan Dwarswich, Robert Kardashian, Sean Holley, Carl E. Douglas and Gerald Ullman. Barry Shrek and Peter Nifield were two additional attorneys who specialised in DNA evidence. Prosecutors were Deputy District Attorneys Marcia Clark, William Hodgman and later Christopher Darden. They thought they had a strong case against Simpson, but Cochrane was able to convince the jury that there was a reasonable doubt concerning the validity of the state's DNA evidence, which was a new form of evidence in trials at that time. The reasonable doubt theory included evidence that the blood sample had allegedly been mishandled by lab scientists and technicians. The defence team also cited other misconduct by the LAPD related to systematic racism and incompetence. The verdict was released on October 3rd, 1995 and OJ Simpson was acquitted. To this day, no other suspects have been questioned and the murders remained unsolved. Bobby Dale, 40-year-old Sherilyn Leanne, 
and their six-year-old daughter, Madison Stormy Starr, was seen for the last time before vanishing without a trace. The family lived in Oklahoma and was last seen by a man who lived in the mountains in southern eastern Oklahoma. However, the witness claims that he only saw the family and no one else in that area during the time. The Jamesons were there to view a 40-acre plot of land that they were looking to purchase. They were looking to live in a shipping container that they had already been living in on their plot of land in Oklahoma. On October 16th, eight days after the Jamesons were last seen alive, the first major discovery in the case occurred. Hunters in a remote location in the woods after a quarter of a mile away from the last spot the Jamesons were seen discovered the Jamesons abandoned truck, which was still locked. Inside the truck, investigators found Bobby's wallet, Sherilyn's purse, jackets, a GPS, Bobby's cell phone, $32,000 cash in a bank bag and the Jameson's pet dog, Maisie, who was incredibly malnourished but still alive. Bobby's cell phone had a picture of Madison and is believed to have been taken the day before they disappeared. The truck showed no evidence of any kind of struggle. Former Sheriff Ian Camp remarked, I think they were forced to stop and get out the truck to meet someone they recognised and then I think they either left willingly or by force. The GPS unit in the truck indicated that the family had been further up a nearby hill prior to the location where the truck and belongings were found. Investigators followed the coordinates and found pop prints. One day later, on October 17th, 300 people, including authorities and volunteers, staged a large-scale air and ground search party. But unfortunately, any leads went cold and the search for the Jamesons was called off. On November 16, 2013, hunters were scouting for deer hunting locations when they found partial skeletal remains of three bodies, two adults and one child. The remains were found less than three miles from where the Jameson family had parked their truck four years earlier. The search uncovered shoes, bits of clothing, adult teeth, an adult arm and leg bone and bone fragments. The bones would eventually be confirmed as the missing Jameson family. However, no cause of death was determined and the circumstances surrounding their disappearance remains unknown. Established himself as a teenage thug. They terrorised local street vendors and collected protection money from other gangs in the area. Not too long after that, they had a business that included bootlegging and gambling all over New York City and quickly rose through the ranks of the crime world. In 1937, Bugsy and Sedway were sent to California to build up the mob presence on the West Coast. Since bootlegging was no longer needed, Bugsy focused on gambling. 
He invested in the SS Rex, a gambling ship that was docked three miles off the coast of Santa Monica, California, to try and avoid California's anti-gambling rules. When authorities closed the ship down, Bugsy turned his sights to Las Vegas, since Nevada had legalised gambling and they would avoid any headaches trying to dodge the police. With syndicate money in 1945, Bugsy took a, over a struggle construction project outside the city limits, the Flamingo Hotel and Casino. At that time, Las Vegas was nothing like the glittering city we think of today. The Flamingo was the first luxurious hotel on the Strip. Even though the project wasn't finished, Bugsy opened the casino on December 26, 1946. Famous celebrities like Judy Garland and Clark Gable attended the opening. After the party was over, Bugsy closed the doors to finish construction and the mob back on the East Coast became antsy. By this time, the casino's budget had ballooned from one million to six million, thanks to Bugsy's skimming from the top. During a meeting of mob bigwigs in Cuba, it was settled that if Flamingo was a success, Bugsy would be able to make things right. Luckily for Bugsy, the Flamingo had already made $250,000 in profit. Unluckily for Bugsy, it wasn't enough to please the mob. On June 20th, 1947, Bugsy was sitting on the couch at his mistress's Virginia Hills home in Beverly Hills, California. At around 10.45pm, from a rose-covered pergolo, just 14 feet away from Bugsy, a 30 caliber military rifle fired at least nine shots at the mobster. Four rounds hit Bugsy, killing him instantly. Moments later, three of Mayor Lansky's henchmen walked into the Flamingo and declared that they were taking over the casino. Beverly Hills Police Chief Clinton H. Anderson said in a statement at the time, we spent many man-hours investigating the cigar case and was convinced that he was killed by his own associates, but there was never significant evidence to pinpoint the identity of the assassin. December 12, 1910, she left her home on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and told her mother that she was headed downtown to buy an evening dress. According to the New York Times, when her mother asked if she could accompany her daughter, Dorothy said no. When I find the gown I want, I will telephone you and you can come down and see it. When she left the house, she had over $30 in her pocket. In today's currency, that would be more than $750. On her way down Fifth Avenue, she stopped at a grocery store on 59th Street to buy some chocolate, then at a bookstore on 27th Street where she bought a copy of Engaged Girl Sketches 
a humorous collection of short romantic stories. Around the time when she bought the book, she ran into a friend from college, Gladys King. The two talked about a party that they had both been invited to, the same party that Dorothy was buying a dress for. Gladys left to meet her mother for lunch and Dorothy was never seen again. Francis Arnold was reluctant to gain publicity over his daughter's disappearance and initially employed the help of private investigators. After those attempts were unsuccessful, the family filed a missing persons report with the New York City Police Department in January 1911. Various theories, sightings and rumours regarding Arnold's disappearance circulated in the years and decades after she was last seen. But the circumstances surrounding her disappearance have never been resolved and her fate remains unknown. were running low, White left for more supplies. When he returned three years later, he found the Connolly carefully abandoned. With all houses and military constructions dismantled with care, before he had left the Connolly, White had instructed his people that if they were taken by force, someone was to carve a cross into a nearby tree. But there was no cross, nor sign that they'd been brutally taken over. The only clue was the word Croatian, the name of a Native American tribe that allied with English colonists, which was carved into a post. White took this to mean that the colonists had moved to Croatian Island. Ongoing investigations have claimed that the colonists had been slaughtered by the Palhantan tribe, but there was no archaeological evidence to support this. And a recent re-examination indicates that any massacre that occurred was not of this particular group of colonists, but rather a group of colonists who had arrived earlier. More theories involved an amalgamation between the colonists and the Croatians, but so far no DNA evidence has identified any descendants of the Connolly. <laughs> and the aquarium's owner, Bert Hobson, needed something to attract customers. His spirits were lifted when he and his son caught a 14-foot one-ton tiger shark 
off the coast and put it in their pool. There have been numerous shark attacks in the area and Hobson thought it was the perfect thing to save his business. After a week, after catching the shark and in front of crowds of families, the shark began to convulse and vomit, spitting up a rat, a bird and a human arm. Hobson called the police and they fished out the arm, which had a tattoo of two boxers fighting, which was located inside the forearm. The shark was killed and the stomach was cut open to look for any other remains, but none were found. Using new fingerprint technology, they were able to identify the arm's original operator to 45-year-old Jimmy Smith, who had been missing since April 7th, 1935. Early investigations into Smith's disappearance and shark consumption led police to a Sydney businessman named Reginald William Lloyd Holmes. Holmes was a smuggler who also ran a successful family boat building business at Lavender Bay, near South Wales. Holmes had employed Smith several times to work insurance scams, including one in 1934 in which an oversized, over pleasure cruiser named Pathfinder was sunk. Shortly afterward, the pair began a partnership with Patrick Francis Brady, an ex-serviceman and convicted voyager. With signatures from Holmes friends and clients provided by the boat's tycoon, Brady would forge cheques for smaller amounts against their bank accounts, which he and Smith then cashed. Police were later to, able to figure out that Smith had been blackmailing Holmes. Smith was last seen drinking and playing cards with Patrick Francis Brady at the Cecil Hotel in southern Sydney after telling his wife he was going fishing. Brady had rented a small cottage at the time Smith went missing. Police alleged that Smith was murdered at this cottage. Port Hacking and Guatemala Bay were searched by the Australian Navy and the Air Force but the rest of Smith's body was never found. into the hotel president in Kansas City, Missouri. He showed up with no luggage. He was described as being 20 to 35 years old, had brown hair, a scar on his scalp visible above the ear, and a case of cauliflower ear. He was dressed nicely in a black coat and received the room key for room 1046. When the maid, Mary Soptic, said, Owen allowed her to clean while he was in the room, but asked not to lock the door behind her because his friend was about to visit the room very soon. Soptic said he kept the blinds tightly drawn and the lights off with the exception of one dim lamp. Other staff members who entered the room mentioned that same detail. Soptic also mentioned that Owen was either worried about something or afraid and always wanted to kind of keep in the dark. 
at 4pm, Sotsik returned with fresh towels to find Owen laying on the bed, completely dressed in the dark with the door unlocked. She also saw a note that read, Don, I'll be back in 15 minutes. Wait. The next morning, January 3rd, Sotsik came back to clean the room. She noticed that the door had been locked from the outside and assumed Owen had locked it whilst he was leaving the room. However, Owen was sitting inside, again with the lights off, which meant that someone else had locked the door from the outside room. When Sotsik was cleaning, Owen answered a telephone call and said, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I am not hungry. I just had breakfast. Repeating, No, I am not hungry. Sotsik again arrived later that evening to bring fresh towels and heard two male voices coming from inside the room. When she knocked on the door, she heard a rough voice say, Who is it? When she explained that she had fresh towels, the voice replied, We don't need any. During the night, a woman staying in room 1048 would report hearing loud voices, both male and female, cursing on the same floor. There was a party going on that night in room 1055. The next morning, January 4th, around 7am, the hotel switchboard operator noticed that Owen's phone was off the hook for quite some time without being in use. So she sent the bellboy, Randolph Crofts, to go and see what was up. Despite the door having a do not disturb sign, Crofts knocked several times and heard a voice that said, come in, turn on the lights. However, the door was locked and no one was getting up to let the bellboy in. So after knocking repeatedly, Prompt simply said, put the phone back on the hook, assuming that Owen was drunk. About an hour and a half later, at around 8.30am, the phone was still off the hook and another bellboy, Harold Pike, let himself into the room with a passkey. Using only the light from the hall, Pike discovered that Owen laying on the bed naked and assumed drunk. He also noticed that the bedding was darkened around Owen. The phone stand was kicked down to the ground, so he fixed it and put the phone back onto the retriever. From 10.30 to 10.45am, the phone was once again off the receiver. They sent Prosp to resolve the situation and when he opened the door, he saw a truly horrific scene. Prosp told the police, When I entered the room, this man was within two feet of the door on his knees and elbows, holding his head in his hands. I saw blood on his head. I then turned the light on. I looked around and saw blood on the walls, on the bed and in the bathroom. This frightened me and I immediately left the room and went downstairs. Owen had been bound with a cord round his neck, wrists and ankles. His neck had bruising, suggesting someone had been attempting to strangle him. He had been stabbed more than once in the chest above the heart and one of the wounds had punctured his lung. Blows to his head had left him with a skull fracture on the right hand side. In addition to the blood Prosps had seen, there was some additional splattering on the ceiling. Dr. Flanders cut the cords from Owen's wrists and asked him who had done this to him. Nobody, he answered. When they asked what had caused these injuries, Owen said he had fallen and hit his head on the bathtub. The doctor asked if he'd been trying to kill himself. After saying no, Owen lost consciousness and was taken to the hospital. 
He was completely comatose by the time he arrived and died shortly after midnight on January 5th. Although Owen's true identity was revealed later, a year later, year and a half later, as Artemis Ogletree, no suspects have ever been identified. The Kansas City Police continue to investigate. was found 150 feet away from her honeymoon cottage in just nine inches of water on the banks of a river in Severin Falls. Just eight days prior, on May 12th, Christina had eloped with 26-year-old war veteran John Ray Jack Kettlewell after knowing each other for three years. Jack had a friend named Ronald Barry who was a 28-year-old immigrant from Italy who was a professional ballroom dancer. It was reported that Jack, Christina and Ronald spent an inordinate amount of time together. Christina's family even thought that Ronald was in love with Christina. Following the allotment, the newlyweds of Kettlewell spent the next few days at a rented apartment in Toronto. Bizarrely, Ronald joined them for the entirety of their honeymoon and on May 17th, the trio headed to Ronald's remote cottage in Severn Falls which was only accessible by boat. During that time, it was reported that Christina began to act out of character. She would go into crying fits and at other times seem dazed. Evidence suggests that Christina had conversations with Ronald about whether or not Jack truly loved her. And on May 20th, Christina disappeared and Ronald's cabin mysteriously caught on fire. Ronald returned to the cabin to find a disorientated Jack sitting in the cabin with an apparent head injury and pulled him out of the flames. It was then reported he looked for Christina but couldn't find her anywhere in the cottage. Ronald then said that the cottage burned down in just an hour. He then took Jack into the boat back to the mainland of Severn Falls, took his friend to the hospital and then contacted the police. It was then that the situation became worse. Later, Christina's body was found by an owner of a boathouse in the area. Her body was free from burns or any sign of violence. An autopsy found traces of codeine in her stomach, but her ultimate cause of death was declared a drowning. Interestingly enough, Major Lawrence Scarfield, who acted as a first responder to the fire, reported that he saw no signs of Christina's body in the area when he went to go get water to help just extinguish the flames from the house just hours earlier. Jack, Ronald and 20 other people were questioned by police and despite possible theories, including that Christina committed suicide, the case remains unsolved. <laughs>
21. James Riddle Jimmy Hoffa was the former Teamster president from 1958 to 1971. The Teamsters were known primarily as labour union for drivers. At just age 18, Hoffa succeeded in getting dock workers better pay by organising a strike. He began organising for the Teamsters a year later and gradually rose through the ranks. Hoffa's influence as the Teamsters president was significant. At the time, 90% of US transportation was controlled by Teamsters, who were controlled by Hoffa. In 1941, Hoffa and his Teamsters were in a turf battle with their rivals in Detroit. It was during this time that Hoffa got involved with the mob. Hoffa hired the mob to get rid of the rivals in the city. Although it worked, Hoffa was eventually owned by the Mafia. The mob and Hoffa had a symbolic relationship in which the mob was able to take loans out of the Teamsters pension fund. These funds funneled into many Las Vegas casinos and in, in return, Hoffa and the pension fund got a favourable return on these loans. Despite his connections to the mob, Hoffa was still loved by the Teamsters as he was known for increasing benefits and wages for workers. Throughout the 1940s and 1950s, Hoffa was able to have a good relation with the mob until he started a 13-year prison sentence in 1967 for crimes including bribery, jury tampering and mail fraud. He was then pardoned by President Nixon in 1971 as long as he abstained from any union involvement until 1980. This would lead to Hoffa's downfall. In July 1976, it was discovered that the Teamsters largest pension fund had been robbed of hundreds of millions of dollars and only two weeks later, Hoffa vanished. On July 30th, 1975, Hoffa was seen at a Detroit area restaurant. According to the notes, Hoffa wrote to his family. He was asked to meet two acquaintances at 2 p.m. The acquaintances were suspects Anthony Tony Jack Garconi and Anthony Tony Pro Provisonia, both members of the mob. However, they never showed up to the meeting. And when they were both questioned by the FBI, they insisted that no meeting was ever organised. Despite extensive surveillance and bugging by the FBI, investigators found that the Mafia members who thought were involved were generally unwilling to talk about Hoffa's disappearance, even in private. Despite the lack of evidence, there is a wide agreement among crime historians and investigators close to the case that Hoffa was murdered by his enemies in the Mafia. However, key details of his disappearance remain either unknown or unprovable, and this has ensured that no individuals have ever been charged in relation to the case. Hoffa's body was never found. experiences or even movie recommendations don't hesitate to contact me darkandspooky13 at gmail.com if you can also please leave a review and rating on whatever platform you do listen to your podcasts on it will really help me out and get in up there with the numbers also if you are on social media and you're not already following me i am on facebook and instagram under the same name 
which is dark underscore and underscore spooky 666. So if you are following me on Facebook, if you can, please also just do me a little favour and leave me a star rating and a review over there. It will just really help me out with the Facebook algorithm. And also just get involved with the posts as well. It's quite fun. Don't forget, book club is coming soon as well. Um, so if you do have any questions or if that is something of interest, you can email me or message me with regards to that. So that will be £6.66 a month. We'll meet online up to three times a week. 8 till 10 p.m. UK English time, where we basically all will be reading the same book a month, but we'll all participate in reading little bits of the chapters and then obviously discussing it and everything from there. The first couple of months, the books are already chosen, but then after that, just so that we've got in a rhythm, we'll then start to choose our, our own books between us all. All that's left to say is stay spooky and I'll see you on the next one.